Well, as we head home together and look at the home, how can we do the home better? How do we do relationships better? We began last week by looking at the relationship between Jesus and his brothers. We found out that there was a lot of conflict there. And Jesus was a genius in learning how to navigate the conflict that happened between adult men. How do we do that? How do we process that? How do we not let people push our buttons? Today we're going to dig a little bit deeper into Jesus and looking at how he interacts with his mom and dad. His mom and dad were good people. They were honored people. They were amazing people. But they weren't perfect people. And Joseph and Mary made a lot of mistakes. We're going to learn some of their bad tools maybe they used and then maybe some good tools that Jesus used that allowed them in the midst of an imperfect family to, to, to flourish. Because the Bible says that Jesus is not only a, a good teacher, he's God himself. Now, if that's true, and I believe that's true, but if you don't, that's all right. You can believe whatever you want. But the Bible claims that Jesus is perfect. So we can learn a lot from how he interacts with things. But imagine how frustrating it would be to have a perfect child. Because you're like, no, no, I wish they were perfect, right? Because I wouldn't have to do blah, blah, blah. But that means every time you're in a fight with your son, you're wrong. <laughs> right? I mean, what would it be like having a perfect child? I mean, you can ask my parents. They could probably tell you. <laughs> According to my brother and sister. No, we're, we're all imperfect and we all make mistakes. And yet we're going to find in this journey, by being a fly on the wall in Jesus' house... What are some things we can learn from each other? You know, we're all really good at, again, putting on a good image. Wow, don't we look good and pretty from a distance? Aren't we really good at pretending like we've got it all together? Yet in the context of relationships, when you get up close to us, you find out, man, I could use some work on this. Man, I need to improve in this. And sometimes a slight skill set and a slight assumption change can change the dynamics. In fact, it's interesting, uh, we had a a family, and there was a, a, a conflict going on, and Sierra Strong was telling me the story. She was sharing with them a, a new tool from a book she read. And the family kind of had this idea of, you know, kids should obey, and they should obey, and they just kept pushing the obedience button on this particular issue and this particular child, and it wasn't working. And so Sierra had shared a story about why listening can actually be a better first step in parenting. And often as parents, we don't listen well. As managers, we don't listen well. As spouses, we don't listen well. We just don't listen well. And they said, ah, I don't think so. What's going on? Well, our daughter just will not go to sleep. Every time she, we put her in bed, she gets up, does a whole water trick, the whole bit. So we've threatened, we've taken away iPads, we've, we've punished, we've gone earlier, nothing's working. And so Sierra Strong had suggested that, why don't you just dig in like this story from the, book, from the book she just read and listen, find out what's going on. And here's how the story went. This mom who couldn't get her daughter to go to sleep on time they tried to get all the typical, you know, consequences and rewards. So finally they said, well, what's going on, honey? Why are you not obeying mom and dad? And why are you not going to sleep when we tell you? She said, well, I don't want to fall asleep. Well, I know that, but why? Well, do you remember last month? What happened last month? Well, last month you told me grandma had fallen asleep. And then we went to her funeral, and we put Grandma in a hole in the ground in the middle of a cemetery, and I'm afraid that if I fall asleep like Grandma, I'll end up being put in a box and put in the ground in a cemetery. And all of a sudden, the mom was like, oh, my goodness. 
what I thought was belligerence or what I thought was stubbornness was actually fear. In fact, Sierra has done several teachings and trainings on how to talk to your kids about grief and death. And often as parents, we use tools like, you know, so-and-so has fallen asleep. It actually creates a lot of um, dissonance in our kids who aren't old enough to appreciate metaphors or things like that. So it's better to say, hey, grandma has died. Grandma got sick and died. Because in this case, by learning to listen to their daughter better, they were able to better understand that this is not a rebellion issue. This is a compassion issue. They were able to listen to her, explain the difference between falling asleep and death, and help their daughter begin to sleep again. New tools. And the assumption was our daughter's being arrogant or belligerent, and it really was just she was being a kid. But often it's the assumptions we bring to a conflict (laughs) and the tools we use in a conflict become the source of the conflict. And they become the bottleneck for us learning how to repair with one another. And we don't often do a very good job of differentiating between who we are and the bad tools we inherited <laughs> from our kids or our family of origin. So we just think that how we, how we express ourselves is who we are. What well, is who we are, but it's who we are in a bad tool. And this tool we're using in the conflict usually becomes the source of the conflict. And if we could learn how to change, get new tools and new techniques, we could actually change the dynamics of our relationships. And in doing so, learn how to repair when we bump into each other, repair each other when we, when we hurt each other. So to do that, we're going to look at some assumptions today, some of the bad tools maybe that Mary and Joseph had, and some of the good tools Jesus had in hopes of improving our own relationships. Let's start with those assumptions. What are some of the assumptions that we bring to conflict? And it's lots of them. In fact, we assume what's normal, what you should think, what you should do, how you should react, how you should feel. Well, we, we should all over ourselves. And those assumptions we make in shoulding often create a source of the conflict. So let me set the stage here for Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph have just gone to a big festival. Two million people, history tells us, have come to what's known as Passover, the Feast of Passover in their day. This is like the Super Bowl Sunday of their day, only it's a religious and political celebration of a time that God delivered his people from Egypt and a time that God brought repair in relationship by teaching the people how they could be forgiven. So Jesus is about 12 years old at the time. They've shown up to the feast of Passover. Oh, he's 12, rather. He's 12 years old. They come to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So the Bible said you only had to go to church three times. Pretty nice, a year. You only had to go to church three times a year if you were Jewish, and that was for Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Sukkot. So this is one of the three times a year you go to church. So they go to Tabernacle. And while they're there, they'd finished the days that returned, and they're now leaving Passover to head back home. However, they would often travel in families and in groups. And the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Now, if you've ever lost a child or a grandchild, you know that panic feeling. I remember losing Javen one time, and we were at the back of the store. He disappeared, and it was like 15 minutes. Code Adam shut all the doors, and he was playing video games at the front when he was like four or five. But I remember it being panicked. And I'm somebody who loses my phone all the time. I lose my wallet all the time. I lose my keys all the time. Mary has just lost the Son of God. This is not good. This is not, you know, this is not a low-end kind of stressor. She's lost the Son of God. He's lingered behind in Jerusalem. They're now traveled several days away, and they don't realize they've lost him. All right, what happens next? Well, next part of the passage says this. So Joseph and Mary did not know it that he lingered behind, and they supposed him to have been with them in the company of maybe some friends. 
in the company. And they went a day's journey. So they've been traveling for a day without Jesus. And they sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Hey, who's, who's taking care of Jesus? Anybody watching out for Jesus? Everybody's like, not me, not me, not me, not me. And they did not find him. So they turn around and they're rushing back to Jerusalem trying to find him. Now, immediately we see something that causes a lot of conflict. They didn't know something, right? They did not know. Therefore, they supposed something. And when what they supposed wasn't true, panic sets in. Now, how often in relationships does supposing and when create the conflict? I supposed you're going to do this. Didn't happen the way I expected. And when you didn't do what I expected, I got upset. I got mad. I suppose you'd handle it this way. You didn't handle it this way. When you didn't handle it that way, I blew up. I felt unloved. I felt unappreciated. Right? I'm not sure we always realize how many assumptions we bring to conflict. We suppose things and don't know things. Instead of clarifying, hey, I wasn't sure what you're thinking there. I wasn't sure what you're going to do there. Maybe we just had a miscommunication. We take things personally. We begin to get upset and panicked and anxious. It happens to all of us. What do you think are some of the supposed wins that you bring to your conflict? The things you assume are true of all people, what you assume is normal. What are the assumptions you bring to parenting? Should a mom and dad apologize to their kids if they're wrong? No, they're the kids and we're the adults. That's an assumption. Another assumption might be how are parents' kids going to learn how to really apologize unless they see adults do it? If it's really true you're supposed to be patient, doesn't it mean mom and dad should be patient with me the same way I'm patient with them? When you're not patient, should you be admitting to your kids that you're not patient? My kids heard me apologize all the time because I fell short of the standards. But how we assume what kids do, don't do, if we assume that our kids are being belligerent when maybe they're just being scared, there's so often assumptions we bring to conflict that end up causing the conflict. It's the miscommunication. It's what we don't know. and It's what we suppose was supposed to happen. I tell you, two topics that I see couples fight over a lot from premarital all the way through decades of marriage are how do you want to be treated when you're sick and how clean the house is. <laughs> because how you grew up, hey, when I'm sick, somebody cares for me and dawdles over me, or when I'm sick, I want to be left alone. I've seen couples fight over the assumption of how to care for one another when you're sick. I've seen couples fight over, over cleanliness. Maybe you had a, a mom or dad who's a clean freak, and so you're used to the house being very nice, and so you expect that everyone's household growing up was very nice and clean. And then when you marry somebody who's not a cleanie but is more of a messy, you think they're wrong versus just different. And that causes a lot of conflict. I've talked to couples who say, listen, I can't relax at home unless it's, unless it's clean. And so my, I, my expectation is that the other spouse should be cleaning up all the time. The other spouse is like, man, I am just exhausted trying to get you know, this much done. I can't also turn the house into a museum. Right? Those assumptions. None are right or wrong, but those assumptions come in and bring some conflict into how we perceive things. My dad and I would work in the workshop all the time. So my dad has a giant workshop with bandsaws and sanders and everything. And I am not a neat freak at all. I'm a, very much a creative messy. And so we'd come in, and I like to get things done and get things done fast. All right, we're going to do a project with Dad. This is awesome. So we jump in. What do we grab some, we're going to do some electrical work. We're going to build something. And Dad's like, whoa, whoa, before we do anything, we've got to clean up the shop. <laughs> and I would feel like Dad is prioritizing cleaning over me. But what I learned over the years is my dad doesn't function best in chaos. So one of the things I can do to serve him is to say, 
as much as I like to get stuff done, my preference, he likes to have things clean before we get it done. And so there's a way in which we can not assume our way is the best. I like being efficient, and I don't necessarily care if there's clutter, I don't even see it. He would say, when I get things clean, then I can function better. It's a way in which we can bring our assumptions together and not judge the other person for being wrong, but adapt to one another. All, right, all that's going to play on in just a second. So what are some of the assumptions you bring to play into your conflict? And then what are some of the bad tools? So we're going to see some of the bad tools here for flying the wall. What are the bad tools that Mary uh, brings to the table and how she handles this? And again, we're not here to demonize her. In fact, you're going to find that you and I do the exact thing she does. And if you had lost the son of God or lost your child for a day, your panic would be understandable. But it's often in panic our bad tools are manifest, how we communicate with one another. So they show up. Here's what it says in the passage. They come to the feast of, pa- of uh, Passover. And so it was after three days. It took th- so they traveled back a day. Right? They went a day, traveled back a day, spent three days wandering through a city of two million people finding him. Right? So, wow. I mean, wouldn't you be panicked? I would be. And they found him sitting in the midst of the teachers of the law, to the religious people today, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and answers to spiritual questions at age 12. Well, Mary comes running up, and what do you say? What does she say? Well, here's what she says. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to Jesus these words, Son! Why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. So you can feel her panic. You can feel her fear. You can feel her anxiety. And that's understandable. But there's a lot of bad habits that are built into this that I think we all practice. Let's just look at a couple of them. Number one, what's the first bad tool she uses? We personalize the conflict. Conflict is hard enough without personalizing it. She says, why have you done this to us? Now, Jesus is a 12-year-old. He's hanging out in God's house asking questions. Do you think at any time he thought to himself, how could I bring panic into mom's life for the next five days? Do you think that's in any way his legitimate thought process or motivation? Of course not. Now, we understand why she took it personally, but when you personalize a conflict, you immediately escalate the odds. Because now we're not just talking about how we disagree with something. You're now attacking me personally. You stayed in Jerusalem on purpose to make mom sick, to, put, to, punch the bear, to, to poke the bear, to, to, to push me, to purposely make me angry, right? How often do we do that? We personalize the conflict. And because of it, it raises the emotional temperature and it does not make for better communication. Second thing she does, it doesn't just personalize the conflict. What's the second thing you notice here? Accuse before you listen. Jesus here talking to some people, asking great spiritual questions. You know, he's given a, a theological treaty on the world. And people are like, wow, it's amazing. And she runs in the room, son, why have you done this? Just look, 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 look. You can just hear the accusations. It's not presuming the worst. Why have you done this to us? Look what you've done. You almost see her finger out. While the tone we use in speaking to one another is often to not say, hey, what's going on? Was there a misunderstanding? Did you think it was okay to stay for an extra five days? Did you tell me that you're staying with somebody and I didn't hear because, you know, we were really busy? Right? A lot of things could have happened. When we presume there might have been a suppose we did not know miscommunication, we talk differently. But often we don't listen. 
we presume we know what happened, we know why they did what they did, we know what should have happened, and we know what they should have done, and we know what should have done and why it shouldn't have happened to us. And so we accuse before we listen. Instead of saying, listen, I'm very anxious. What happened? We've been worried about you. Um, tell me more. Let's, let's listen. Right? Especially when we get anxious and we get fearful, a lot of our bad habits come out. The right, third thing that she does here, she doesn't just accuse before she listens, um, she uses lots of you statements. Now, having done marriage counseling and family counseling for many, many years, I have never seen you statements bring out the best in people. <laughs> you never do this. You always, you don't care enough. You're always like, you never come home. You, 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 you. Son, why have you done this to us? And again, it's not like you're eliminating the word you from your, from your vocabulary, but you is always focused on the other person's bad behavior. If she had said, man, I was worried about you. See how that's different? You did this to us. We've been worried about you. See the difference just in that tool? And often we got modeled for our, ourselves by our parents and others using you statements all the time. And when other people use it on us, we get defensive. But then we use it for other people. And then we use it with our kids too. What if in the same way we try not to use you statements and as accusatory statements in our parenting? Might it make for a, a better environment? So she says, why have you done this to us? It's personal. The last thing she does here that isn't a particular ordeal is she uses shame and blame. I think many of us were modeled shame and blame uh, conflict techniques. You have made us anxious. We're anxious because of you. Here's the truth, and it doesn't feel true, but it is true. No one makes me angry. I make myself angry. No one makes me anxious. I make myself anxious. No one makes me fearful. I choose to be fearful. So the idea of parenting by you made mom and dad mad, and now the, the, the standard for our kids is they need to not make mom and dad mad. It's not a very healthy standard. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be fearful. It's be good anxious. But don't blame people and circumstances for your anxiety. And so she's shaming and blaming Jesus. Your, your actions made me anxious. Well, the truth is she made herself anxious, and it's understandable. But what if we begin to take responsibility for our actions and say, I'm the one that makes myself anxious. I'm the one that made myself angry. And I don't prefer these circumstances. I really need some comfort here. I really need some appreciation here. I need you to understand how your actions affected me. That's different from you made me. And I think a lot of times, these just these four tools, for example, use statements, accusations, not listening, accusing, they're almost like we don't even know we pick these tools up, these bad tools over time, and they're almost like these like time bombs waiting, and we date and everything's fine, and then dating gets a little serious, and then you get married, and these things blow up, and they hurt us. We're like, where'd this come from? We didn't used to fight all the time, but conflict and family bring out our bad tools. I'll give you an example. World War II, they're trying to figure out how to disrupt the Nazis. And so they, they, it was either Scotland Yard or MI6, but whoever it was, they said, what's a way that we could disrupt the Nazis from building all these war tanks and all this, um, these machines of war so quickly? And so in England, they came up with this brilliant idea, what they called rat bombs. Rat bombs. They literally went and found dead rats, opened them up, stuck a little bit of, you know, yeah, I don't know, some kind of explosive material inside, whatever fit inside of a rat, sewed it back up. And it had all of these rat bombs. And it wasn't enough explosive or M4, or whatever it was, C4 rather, to do a lot of damage. However, their goal was to throw it onto the coal um, trains that were being taken to the Nazi German uh, firing plants for steel that were making the tanks. 
And they knew a rat would be discarded, so when they were shoveling in the coal, they would just see a dead rat and just throw him into the fire. And it was just enough C4 that when the rat went into the little furnace that would burn the, the steel, it would blow up the furnace. So there's the rat bombs. So this seemingly small, seemingly unnoticeable, seemingly harmless thing was going to destroy or stop or confuse the entire Nazi military plan. Except the Nazis found a big truckload of dead rats. And they went, why is there a big truckload of, I mean, it was a train uh, load of rats, and they found all these rats with all these bombs in it. Now, what they didn't know is this was the first load. They didn't know it was the first load or the hundredth load, so they assumed that there were already thousands of rats spread throughout their coal system. So the Nazis shut down their, 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 their military-making mechanism and went through every piece of coal and every single factory looking for rat bombs. And it ended up causing more confusion not having the rat bomb than it did if they'd actually blown it up. And I think oftentimes we don't take the time to go search and see what are the ways in which some bad habits that we've had modeled for us or that we think are who we are or how we converse is actually blowing up our marriage, blowing up our parenting, you know, hurting the people we care about. Little rat bombs. How do we make different assumptions? Now Jesus does this, and this is really amazing. Jesus, even at age 12, and he's still got a lot of area to grow, you just see the way in which he is so mature in these new tools he uses for conflict. And these are tools he uses throughout his life, for example, that are just really helpful for you and I. So, again, set the stage. Mom has just accused him of making her anxious and making him, you know, doing bad things and doing this on purpose. And Jesus says, hey, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's business, that I'd be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. So if you have ever had somebody put their finger in your face, and we've all had, right, and we've all done it, is your first instinct to nicely listen to ask questions? No, it's to defend. That's not true. That's not true. I didn't make you nervous. I, didn't, I told you I was going to be here, right? Jesus' immediate response to all these accusations is to ask questions. Ask questions first. Hey, hey why'd you seek me? What was going on? What caused the confusion? Didn't you know I was going to be here? So even the tonality that Jesus uses, Jesus is just a master at using questions. He, he's a master at listening by asking questions. What's happening? What's going on? How can I help? I want you to know I care. Rather than accuse first and then listen, listen first. And Jesus uses a rabbinic technique, um, some people call it Socratic method, but the idea of asking questions to figure out what's really going on. And often we don't ask enough questions to really make sure the other person feels heard and we really understand. We just keep assuming we know what they meant and we know what should have happened. So ask questions first. The second thing I want you to notice, and this is just really amazing what Jesus does, is that Jesus is able to uh, clarify misunderstanding without getting defensive. Now, how do we do this? This is one thing that uniquely is true about the Bible, is that the Bible says that you are not your opinions, though they're part of you, but you're not only defined by what you own, though it's part of you. You're not defined by, by uh, your kid's obedience. You're not defined by whether people like you. That the main thing that defines you is God's view of you. And if that becomes the primary way you view yourself, these other things can subordinate themselves to second place. Now, why is that important? Because we live in a culture today that makes your opinion on everything part of you. 
So when somebody criticizes your opinion on parenting, they're criticizing you as a parent, right? Because you decide to be more conservative and they decide to be more lenient in their parenting. And you're not just discussing the merits of two different parenting styles, they're attacking you personally because you are your parenting. Somebody criticizes your kids or brings up that your kids are disobedient and you're like, my kids would never lie. Have you ever heard people say this? My kids would never lie. Well, clearly they do because you're lying to me right now, right? But here's what happens. In our culture, my kids' obedience define me as a mom or dad. Therefore, I've got to either pretend or be deluded enough to think my kids don't lie so that I feel like a good mom or dad. And so when somebody begins to bring up something about my son or daughter or about me, I take it very personally. And when you understand that your definition or your value as a person comes from what God says about you, what happens is something amazing, is that the issue we're talking about becomes second, secondary. And I can say, hey, even if my wife's mad at me, I'm still loved by God and I can listen to her even if she didn't handle this the right way. You know, even though my kids have disobeyed, my kids' disobedience doesn't define me. It actually helps dial down the emotions when we're talking about an issue, not talking about who I am. So Jesus knows who he is in God. He's defined by how God thinks of him, not how his mom thinks of him. So his mom can criticize him, and he can not like that, but he can also not take it personally, and he can clarify the misunderstanding without feeling like he's under attack. Now, i tell you a great example of this. I told this story three years ago, but it's just such a powerful story. It's a true story about Howard Stern and Kathy Lee. I don't know if you know the story, but Kathy Lee was a very prominent Christian, and Howard Stern was not uh, many, many years in the 90s and even maybe going back to the 80s. And Howard Stern just ripped her in his shock jock uh, shows, just called her a hypocrite, called her inconsistent, just called her a fake Christian, it was all about money, blah, 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 and just spent about a decade trashing her. About six years ago, Kathy Lee Gifford was actually doing a tour for a book that she was... Uh, Uh, promoting, she happened to be at a particular facility at the same time America's Got Talent was there and they were doing rehearsals and somebody had told her that she and Howard Stern after decades were in the same building together. And she said, do you think uh, it'd be okay if I went down and tried to say hi? I mean, he has been ripping her for 10 years plus. So they said, well, let's give it a shot. Are you sure? Yeah. So she walks down to his (laughs) to his dressing room, knocks on the door. Hello. She sits down. She says, I thought it was about time we meet. What an intro. She said, hey, I've heard you've said a lot of things about me, but I know you don't really know me. And I want you to know, I just want to introduce myself. You know, I, I've watched America's Got Talent. I, I've seen some things you're doing. I really have appreciated what you brought to the table, etc." Just was gracious and kind. How in the world can you be gracious and kind if somebody spends a decade trashing you on national television and radio? She said, Howard Stern was embarrassed. He said, you know, I am been thinking about this for a year and I didn't have the courage to do it. I'm actually so glad you stopped by here today. I've been following you for all these years and I realize you have been consistent and uh, I'm not a follower of the same thing you're a follower of, but I'm embarrassed of my behavior, and I've been through some therapy to realize kind of what was driving it, but I need to apologize to you personally for the way I've treated you. And she said she got this amazing, heartfelt you know, note and apology from Howard Stern, and that's pretty amazing what Howard Stern did, but I think more amazing is how she could walk in the room without being defensive. 
and to be gracious and kind. And if you asked Kathy Lee Gifford today how she did it, she would say, I have an identity in God, that Jesus died for me, Jesus loves me, I'm defined by what Jesus says about me, not what the, the tabloids say about me, not what Howard Stern says about me. And Howard Stern did said some mean things, but guess what, I've said some mean things and Jesus died for those mean things. So I can come to somebody who's been equally cruel and I can come with a sense of compassion and grace even to a circumstance like that because of this unique message of the Bible. Amazing. I mean, it's just amazing that unless you have your identity in something secure, you're going to get so defensive. And Jesus, he had his identity in something secure. Third thing Jesus does here is or the family relationship does here, is that we find out that repairing a relationship doesn't require understanding. You don't have to agree with someone to feel bad that you hurt someone. You and your son, you and your daughter, you and your coworker, you don't have to agree on who was at fault to say, but I, I know you got hurt through this, and I'm sorry you got hurt, and, and I'm sorry that, that we got damaged in the midst of this, right? You don't have to fully understand something or fully agree on something to try and repair it. In fact, what's fascinating is they're at a festival called the Festival of Passover. This is a, a historic Jewish festival going back to 1500 B.C. with Moses about how God repairs his relationships with mankind. God said, hey, you've broken my command, you've done the wrong thing, but I'm going to make a way that because of the death of a lamb and the, the marking of the lamb on your door, my judgment will pass over you. So they're actually at a very significant festival all about how God repairs his relationship with us. And if you realize that God has forgiven you $2 million worth of debt and that your spouse, your son, your daughter, your uncle, your brother, your, your ex owes you, you know, $100,000 in debt, it doesn't mean that what they did wasn't cruel and wasn't mean. But you say, I'm going to forgive others $1,000 or $100,000 worth of debt because God forgave me so much more. It's God repairing of us allows us to repair with others. In fact, Dr. Gottman has done the largest extensive research on marriage in human history, in the Gottman research, and he said the secret to great marriages, the secret to long-lasting marriages, the, the secret to long-lasting relationships is your ability to give and receive repair attempts. Even if you're not good at communicating, <laughs> even if you're not good at listening, if you know how to, when you bruise each other, give a repair attempt and the other person will receive that repair attempt. And that could be as simple as I bought you your favorite coffee to I actually said I'm sorry. Whatever it is, if you can give and receive repair attempts, it's the secret to long-lasting, happy relationships. You might say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, we're doing a men's study going on right now where we're actually talking about that tonight. So if, if that's of interest, even if you didn't come to the first week, they're all self you know, kind of self-sustaining. We're going to talk specifically tonight about how to make repair attempts when we've hurt somebody, when we've bumped into somebody, when we've, we've damaged somebody. And so you can come tonight if you're interested, if you're a man, or you can come tomorrow morning, both of those, or you can get those available online if you want to watch those. But how do we make repair attempts when we've bumped into each other or hurt each other? Because it's the secret to long-lasting relationships. However, for most of us, we just put this stuff off, right? Now, business sounds imminent. Soccer games sound imminent. Tennis matches sound imminent. Learning how to repair with one another doesn't sound very imminent. But it is. So I want to encourage you to make the time while you have the time. Make the time to figure out what your assumptions are. Make the time to find out what are some of the bad tools that maybe you've picked up going back a couple generations. And say, I, I need to 
learn how to say it differently or better. Take the time while you have the time. Your kids are going to be out of that house. I know it feels like now you have no time on your own. I'm telling you, I'm almost an empty nester as much as we're going to be with a special needs child. The kids are there and gone. You only have a little bit of time to learn how to encourage them and affirm them and model grace to them and apologizing to them. You only have a little bit of time before your brother and your mom and your dad might be in hospice, might call you because there's a bad medical report or blood report or you might be standing at a funeral. It's amazing that Jesus, right after this passage, it says that Jesus continued to grow in stature and in wisdom. We're all growing chronologically, but I'm not sure we're growing developmentally. Are you growing in wisdom and your ability to listen and love and forgive? Jesus, even the Son of God, had to increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with other people. He had to learn how to relate to other people in a way that better connected, that better related, that better repaired. I got a chance to listen to a story by my buddy Scott recently. And as I was talking to him, he discussed maybe the challenges of his family dynamics. But what really struck me was his challenge to tell us to make the time to make things right with the people in our lives because the time we have is short. Let's watch his story together. It was always an adventure uh, at our family get-togethers. Uh, first of all, my father was um, a Navy officer, so he's used to telling people what to do. He's used to being in charge. He's used to other people following his every direction. So. He would set the tone uh, in that manner. My mother um, was very much a servant um, personality. She'd have everything done for you, all meals planned, all, everything in order, uh, activities planned. Uh, only um, my mother could probably put up with the personality of my father. My mother and I had uh, a unique relationship. I have a lot of respect for her. Um, one of the things she didn't have that, that was unusual for a mother is she, she really wasn't all that sentimental and loving. She never said, I love you, that I recall. Uh, I knew she did uh, because of the way she served me and my family. Another thing about um, her side of the family, all the women tended to live into their 90s. So I was shocked when I got a call from my mother that she had stage four lung cancer uh, in, her, uh, in her early 70s. Between the chemotherapy and uh, the laser surgery on her brain as the cancer had spread, she not only um, became bald, but she uh, became completely blind. And sometime later, um, I'm driving in Cincinnati somewhere for work and I got a phone call from my mother who doesn't call me very often and she was crying and she said Scott I don't know what to do uh, the nurse and the doctor uh, want me to go on this drug that uh, is supposed to kill my pain stop me from suffering and I don't want to do it and uh, I don't know what to do I said mom if you don't want to go on the drugs don't go on it. you are in charge and, and I told the same thing to the, to the nurse and doctor. But after our phone call, I, I um, 
I spoke with my wife and we were prompted to say, Scott, drive right now to Virginia and go be with your mom. Um, and we, we knew the end couldn't be that far. Um, so on the way to Virginia, I called my brother and sister and they met me there and we had a few days together and that were really uh, special days. And, um, you know, I felt like, and she felt like the time had come, it was time to say goodbye. So God orchestrated that whole sequence, the phone call, the visits, and her holding off to be alert enough to say her goodbyes. So let's just take a moment. Maybe you just want a moment of silence. Maybe a, call it prayer, call it meditation. We all have conflict with someone. Maybe you just want to ask yourself, ask God, who do I need to make it loud and clear with today? A child before they graduate? A mom or dad while you have time? Next business partner that's still causing you to feel bitter? I just want to pray these words. Say, God, I need the courage to go and have this conversation. Maybe say, God, I need the wisdom to know how to have this conversation. Maybe you want to say, God, I need the reminder that you've forgiven me much so that I can forgive what in the eternal things is actually a little. Father, may we be a people who say it loud and clear. May we encourage the people around us. May we love even our enemies. May we respect those around us, accept those around us. May we affirm those around us. May we be known as a people who, out of, the, out of our mouth, come apology and life and building up of other people in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We will see you next week for Mother's Day, and the tent will be open if you want to join us outside next week. Thanks for being here today.